Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Judy, and I'm an alcoholic. I've got bronchitis. James said that he'd just put on one of my old tapes and I could lip sync. (laughs) So if you see anything funny going on, you'll know what's happening. Biloxi, Mississippi. What a place to get sober. From what I've seen so far, it looks to me like you could drink 24 hours a day. If you wanted to, you could switch addictions in a few seconds. And there's an awful lot of glitz and glamour. I'm glad I'm not trying to get sober here, and I'm not planning on a relapse. This morning, however, something rare and unusual occurred. When we were sitting in our room, something came in our window that was bright and interesting and stupendous. I think you call it sunlight. In April of 1980, I decided that my now ex-husband had a serious drinking problem and somebody needed to fix it. And so we sent him to treatment in Mandan, North Dakota. They called me to go to his family week and I went there on Sunday. And on Monday they said this kind of, this routine starts at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning. And I got there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and the first thing they had us do was to introduce ourselves and tell us why we were there and who our patient was. Well, the counselor didn't get there until 10 after 9. And so when it was my turn to tell them who I was and who my patient was, I told them, I came here from Oklahoma. I got here on time at 9 o'clock. I don't see why you can't get here on time at 9 o'clock. I'm spending my good money to get this man fixed, and you guys are falling behind on the job. He needs every bit of fixing you can do. Now, I want to see you here tomorrow at 9 o'clock prompt. On Tuesday... They were asking me about something or another in the issue, the fact that I had had a hit-and-run automobile accident while drinking came up. And I don't know why they were asking me about that, because my ex-husband didn't wasn't driving the car, but they were asking me about that. And on Wednesday, they had the audacity to say to me, you are an alcoholic. Now, I made it clear to them that I had packed enough clothes for one week, for family week. They didn't seem to pay attention to that. That I had important things to do at home. That I had children to go back to. They didn't seem to pay any attention to that. And they ended up keeping me there for seven weeks. (laughs) Now, after a period of time, they let you out of institutions, and they did that, and I proceeded to go to town, and there was a shoe sale going on, and I bought 17 pairs of shoes. (laughs) And I came back to the institution, and they check every dadgum box. I mean, it's like I was surprised they didn't tear the soles out, you know, and they were looking for drugs, and I explained to them, listen, I've got the deal. I'm in your place. I know you don't drink and you don't do drugs here. What's the big deal? And they said, we're going to call your counselor. I thought that was wholly unnecessary. The lady came down there. She's thin as a toothpick and wears kind of sticks in her hair to hold this long gray wad of hair up on top of her head. You know, and and it just looks like it gives her a headache. And she acted like it gave her a headache. She was plumb out of control. I have never seen anybody so rageful. 
And I thought again, you know, if these counselors can't get their stuff together, how do they expect me to get my stuff together? She felt like I needed to return those shoes. And I explained to her again, I was here now to get sober, not to learn about shopping or shoe sales. That was my first introduction to um, following instructions that were suggested by someone who has more time and more brilliance than I. After they released me from that institution, they suggested that I go to Alcoholics Anonymous and that I get a sponsor. And I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I could tell that those people were uh, very disorganized. They were not incorporated. They did not have decent, acceptable furniture. The place was badly in need of a painting. The chairs had stuffing coming out. You know, it was going to cause a fire for as many of those people that were smoking along with me. They said to get a sponsor, and and the rules were, find somebody who has what you want and do what they did to get it. And I found my first sponsor. She was blonde. She had blue eyes. She wore size three clothing. (laughs) She drove a silver Datsun 280ZX. She had three children was married and lived in a two-story house. And she accepted to be my sponsor. My second sponsor... (laughs) ...said, you have to, to do things. You know, you have to get off your rear and do things. And I said, okay, I, I can handle this. Uh, We need a clubhouse in Oklahoma, and I can incorporate Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, being a good salesperson and having the ability of the silver tongue, I talked people with much more sobriety than I into all of my future plans for Alcoholics Anonymous in Norman, Oklahoma. And we incorporated, and, and I was driving down the street, and I saw the perfect new furniture for the clubhouse. And it was sitting outside the Goodwill store, and, of course, that meant that it was for Goodwill usage and talked these other sober people into picking up all this furniture and hauling it down to the AA clubhouse. And AA was proceeding to get fixed properly and quickly. And then someone called me and, and said, I don't know who you think you are, but I don't want to sit on stolen furniture in the clubhouse. And I, I was totally perplexed. And, you know, I had to go to Black's Law Dictionary and look up stealing. What is it? And I had to talk to my sponsor about this. You know, what is stealing? You know, this is a good cause. It was a good purpose. Nobody was going to use it anyhow. They didn't even have to bother to haul it into their store and back out of their store down to AA. I really don't understand. We finally agreed on a year's representation of the Salvation Army as my amends to the goodwill for stealing their furniture. And I'm, I'm certain that that was not the purpose of me obtaining a law degree. However, my sponsor failed to see it that clearly. My second sponsor um, died from cancer, and it was the first time that I had uh, cared a little bit about anyone for any reason. And because the way I got sober was the big book and total 100% abstinence from all mind-altering chemicals and alcohol, it upset me tremendously when they started giving her IV morphine. And I, I didn't understand. I did not understand 
how God did these things, why God did these things, and it was definitely all God's fault. And I also didn't understand why, for any circumstances, you would take a sober alcoholic and, and IV drugs and alcohol into them. I have uh, somewhat more sympathy and compassion um, with that issue today. While I was sober, I had um, kidney stones, and I needed to have surgery and decided to go to the Mayo Clinic because they had this wonderful surgery there where they could stick a little tube in you and blow up the stuff and suck it out. I thought, this is great. We're going to do this with no drugs and no alcohol. In the 12 and 12, they missed a character defect of some alcoholics. It's called rigidity. And I've never seen rigidity as a character defect in myself. However, after I threw up on the doctor, he decided that it was inappropriate to do that surgery without medication. But one thing I can tell you about Mayo is, well, if you tell them when you walk in, I'm alcoholic, I'm drug dependent, they send around little AA people. And they put a, a giant statue of St. Francis outside of my window, hospital window, just for me. And then they make you stay in the hospital another three days after you've finished everything for detoxification. And that really kind of... Uh, saddened me. It kind of blew my plans. Because when I quit drinking, I quit drinking because somebody pointed to me and said, you're an alcoholic. I didn't quit drinking because I really believed that. You know, it was really kind of like a fun club to go to. And I had health left over. I had a car. I had a house. And I had some money left over. And I just wasn't certain that it was my time yet, you know, my time to quit drinking. After I'd been sober about a year, I uh, was mowing my yard. And my sponsor would tell me over and over and over again, all you do during your first year is don't drink, read the book, and go to meetings. And I kept on adding things to the list, like clean the house, mow the yard, balance the checkbook. And I kept on having hot checks. And if there was money in the bank, you kept on writing checks. And if there were checks in your checkbook, you kept on writing checks. And nobody had, had talked to me about financial responsibility yet. But the mowing of the lawn, I reached in the back of the lawnmower to pull out the grass that was stuck there and cut my finger, my index finger off. And the first thought that came to my mind is somebody's going to give me some good drugs for this. And after we went to the hospital and they didn't give me any medication, I thought, you know, Judy, maybe, maybe you are really alcoholic. Maybe. When I had been sober about a year and a half or two years, I uh, went out with some colleagues to drink. Oh, listen to that. We went out to lunch. They went out to drink. But I was not yet at that period of my sobriety, you know, where I was comfortable not doing what everybody else did. And so they all ordered drinks, and I ordered a virgin daiquiri. And when this thing came to the table, I took one sip of it, and it was like holy fire water, you know? I mean, like the roots on my hair were tingling and my toenails were tingling, and the very first thing I thought was, God, Judy, you can finish this. Nobody's ever going to know. You ordered the right thing. You said, Virgin Daiquiri, God wants you to drink this. You can do it. You can handle it. And then God gave me this, you know, moment of clarity. And I thought, you really are an alcoholic. The Oklahoma State Fair... Corn dogs. Thank you, Otto. <laughs> Man, do I have a whole different attitude toward food at the state fair now.
part of what happened in Alcoholics Anonymous was that third step, you know, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And pretty much after turning your will and your life over to the care of a treatment center and then turning your will and your life over to size three blonde, it was getting easier to turn my will and my life over to the care of somebody. And so I turned my will and my life over to the care of my third sponsor. Now, my third sponsor is Greta. And Greta is uh, probably oh, in her 80s now, but Greta was very ephemeral. She floated across the floor. She talked slowly. I saw her in 15 years upset two times. One was over the toilet, and one was over the Internal Revenue Service. Greta's probable total annual income was $4,000. She tried to have an energy audit done on her home, and she used such low energy they couldn't even audit. We do not choose sponsors in Alcoholics Anonymous because they are alike us. I chose Greta because of the calm and peacefulness. And Greta required that I come to her house every day on Thursday or Wednesday, some day of the week, and have lunch. And I would come to her house ranting and raving with daily living problems. You've got to listen to this. And here's what he did. And here's why she did it. And this is what's broken. And this is what's wrong. And she'd say, I know, I know. And before we get to that, we need to go look over here at these jungles. Judy, have you ever seen such bright, brilliant, yellow jungles? Can you believe the color that God has put into these flowers? And look at this one. It's got a stem that's 22 inches long. Have you ever seen a 22-inch long jungle stem? Oh, look at the thickness of the leaves. They carry so much water to support and nurture that whole plant. And by the time we finished her whole yard, (laughs) I had totally forgotten what it was in that outside world that was so disturbing me. Now, one time I came and I, and I let loose and I ranted and I raved and I talked and I complained and I bellyached and pretty soon she just shook her head and she shook her head and she shook her head and she said, oh my, Judy, if it's that bad, you better go drink. Boy, was I really mad about that. I told her, it's not that bad. It's not bad enough to go drink. Oh, it's not. Now, Greta takes step nine very, very literally. Direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And out of step nine, I got my first sense of personal dignity. I had worked while I was going to law school at the local nut house. And I had worked on 5C, which is the ward where all the criminally insane are, where it is acceptable to strap people down and lock them in belts if they misbehave. And they pass out medication to these people. They have to every day. And so I loved working there. I would arrive on my shift gather up all the medication, take the medication, strap in all the patients, and watch them flip out. And I thought, this is the life. This is the life for an alcoholic. Now, I told Greta, what I told Greta was, you know what I think is a good idea? They need a chemical dependency unit at that nut house. 
And they need some big books so they can study about alcoholism and drug addiction. So I'd like to just buy them some big books. Don't you think that's a good idea for amends? And Greta said, perhaps you might look at this differently. And I, for years, have been looking for those words in the big book. You know, perhaps you might look at this differently. And they're not in there. (laughs) However, on page 116, last night I found in the chapter to the wives, Perhaps you might regard it in a different light. (laughs) I ended up going to an AA meeting at 9 o'clock in the morning at the Nut House with the Nuts for at least four weeks when I went back to Greta and said, okay, I've gone to my AA meeting at the Nut House. And Greta said, well, I know, but you need to go until you learn something. (laughs) And so about a year later, after going to my 9 o'clock AA meeting at the Nut House with the Nuts, I saw there a man in a wheelchair, and his teeth were all yellow, and his hair was all messed up, and he had... um, you know, his buttons were crooked on his shirt, and he obviously hadn't had a bath. And he had uh, grass coming out of the cuffs in the bottom of his britches, you know. And, and he was unzipped, and he was he was total disheveled mess. And I was still in the stage of my sobriety when I would look at you, figure out your educational background, your financial statement, what you could do for me, and then I might be able to hear what you said. What I heard this man say was, I've been living like a dog, and I don't want to live like a dog anymore. And there I'd been sober for a couple of years, and I was still living like a dog, And I didn't want to live like a dog anymore. And I went home and I told Greta, guess what? I've been living like a dog and I don't want to live like a dog anymore. And she said, okay. You know, that's right. While I was in law school, we had to do these papers. And you had to have books to do your papers with. And this is in the olden days before the computers. And some of the books were marked reference. Do not remove from this library. Well, because I had that night job at the nut house, you know, I couldn't get there at the right time, and I'd go whenever I could, and, and I needed the book. And, and so I took the book. And I had operated all of my life on the premise of, you see it, you need it, you want it, you take it. You know, that's the principle. And so when looking at Step 9, made direct amends, you know, by now the books are like 11 or 12 years old. And, and law books are out of date by then, so they're of no use to the library. So, Greta, here's my idea. Let's buy the library some new books. And she said, perhaps you might see this differently. And I sacked up those books, those 11-year-old books, and took them physically to the then law librarian and said to the law librarian, when I was a student here, 15 years ago or 12 years ago or whatever the right number is, I stole these books from the law library. And I want to make whole now and would like to pay for the schools missing them. And she looked at me like I was absolutely, positively nuts. Set the books down and started writing out a huge bill, which I had to pay also. When I was drinking, I thought maybe a a solution would be uh, get married, you know, have a kid. That would straighten up my life, you know, because it didn't seem like I could 
get any slack in my life. You know, I couldn't get any breathing space. I couldn't get any room ever. And I'd look at people that were married with children, and I thought, God, they're organized, you know. And so I thought, well, this is the solution. So I got on my very best blue jeans and my halter top and my dangly earrings, and I smoked a little dope and grabbed this guy, and we went down to the courthouse. And it was a fine marriage because he could stay up all night on speed, too, and play pool and like to eat breakfast at 5 o'clock in the morning and sleep all day and get up by 7 o'clock at night and do the whole deal over again. When I talked too much and got in his face, his solution was womp, womp. And when he talked too much and got in my his my face, my solution was bang, bang. And we lived like that, and we loved it, absolutely loved it. It was exciting. It got the adrenaline going, and you knew for sure you were alive. Well, the business about having the kids. So then I decided the solution is not getting married. The solution is having the kid. And I read in a book somewhere, pregnant women ought not drink alcohol. And I said, okay, you're right. I've got it. I didn't drink alcohol while I was pregnant. Continued to smoke dope and do cocaine, but I didn't drink a drop of alcohol. And at seven months, the little villi in the placenta started having these little heart attacks, saying, oh, please, no more. And wouldn't feed the child anymore. And so he was born at three pounds, four ounces, and was about the size of a telephone. And he had to stay in the hospital um, for a month after he was born. And when it was time to make amends, I, I, the phrase, utter disregard for humanity, kept coming through my mind. Uh, my oldest son is now 20 years old. He's perfectly fine and healthy and uh, may or may not be alcoholic. Probably is Al-Anon. <laughs> when he was growing up, I'd jump on him for something or another. You know, like he'd have a little girl in the bedroom with him and she'd have her shoes off and they'd be sitting on the bed. And I would just raise Cain with him about that. And he would respond, Mama, don't judge me by you. I got to go back to the treatment center where I got sober and talk when they closed. And that was, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I took my son with me and just the two of us went on that trip. And we were able... He's been going with me. I believe in taking kids to meetings, in case you can't tell. Mine are here today, some of them. Uh, but, I, you know, he'd been going with me to meetings all along. Um, but I guess we had not spent that much time together. And he remembered so clearly about the, uh, you know, time that I had left him when I was trying to get sober in the meetings that I had gone to. Um, in the beginning of my sobriety. But he sat there in the front row of this talk, and tears came to his eyes. And after the talk, he said, Mama, I really respect you. And that was so important to me. He's been uh, out of the house for two years now. And we had all kinds of odd rules, you know, like if I catch you drinking, you're going to 30 AA meetings. <laughs> I catch you drinking twice, you're going to 60 AA meetings. I catch you drinking three times, you're going to treatment. And it's amazing how well he has survived. When I first got sober, I hired a private investigator to check into the uh, data and statistics of an automobile accident I had had when I was drinking. And it was one of those, uh, you know, you're in a blackout, you wake up all of a sudden and there's cars all over the place and there's glass all over the place and 
You know, I did the first thing any self-respecting alcoholic would do. I got the hell out of there. And this private investigator gave me a packet of stuff that was entirely much more material than I really needed. And it talked about the amount of the damages and the injuries and that kind of stuff. And after about seven or eight years of sobriety, I started to a conscience. And part of the deal with the conscience had to do with getting square with this uh, automobile accident thing. And so I told Greta, you know, I probably ought to donate some money to the, the church down the street. In fact, I've got this gold medallion thing that I don't need anymore. I thought some Sunday when the basket comes by, I'll just drop it in there. And she said, perhaps you might want to look at this differently. And I told her, you're not reading the second part of the step. The second part of the step says, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, for sure it's going to injure them. These people had a horrid accident seven or eight, ten years ago, whenever, and now they've recovered from it. And they don't need anybody disturbing their memories and upsetting them. They don't need to hear from a voice from the past. They have passed through all of that stuff. Hurt others. I am an attorney. I earn money to support this child that I have. And if I tell what happened, I will lose my license to practice law because that's a crime of moral turpitude. And then I won't be able to make any money. And then I won't be able to feed the child. And Greta gave me the lady's address and paper and pencil and said, you know, when you get ready, there it is. And so I wrote this letter, you know, that says, Hi, I'm an alcoholic. I want to live differently today. I'm the one that ran into you 10, 15 years ago, and I would like to make you whole, whatever um, you see is making you whole. And I signed it with my name and my address. And then I started having these dreams. You know, a little old lady coming out of her rocking chair beating me with a newspaper. And and um, another guy rolling over in his hospital bed saying, you, you did it. And uh, by the time I got around to making these amends, you know, there were only one of the people in the accident had died, you know. And so I started counting my pennies because I figured they were going to want to be paid back, you know. And I started taking the district attorney out to lunch because (laughs) it it never hurts. (laughs) And so after I wrote my letter, it was very hard two or three weeks, very hard two or three weeks. And pretty soon I get this phone call from this woman, the, the grandmother lady that was that was in the automobile accident, and she said, Judy, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so. I'm the one that whose car you ran into. I can't believe that you've come forward. And I was quiet because I thought, yeah, neither can I. Because <laughs> I was waiting for the shoe to fall, you know. And we talked for a brief few moments, and, and she wanted to know about getting sober. And I told her, I said, well, you know, it's a real trip. I mean, the first thing you do is you quit drinking, and then you go hang out with these people that smoke and drink coffee a lot. And then you do what a sponsor says, and you read books. And and, uh, I don't know why it works, but it does, because I haven't had a drink for all these years. And she was nearly in tears. And she said, you have given me so much. I have a grandson who has a drinking problem. And after I got your letter and after I listened to you, I now have hope. And I haven't had any hope before. I have hope that he too can also recover. You have given me so much. There's nothing more that I want from you. And she hung up.
The very best that I could do was to buy one red rose and send it to her every year after that amends. I had a sense of respectability, of decency, of rightness. My son and I went to pay less cashways a day or two ago, and I ran the car, having told my husband this one, oh, I ran the car into those things, you know, where you put your baskets. <laughs> and I walked right into the store, walked up to the first clerk that I saw, and I said, I, I ran into your thing out there in the parking lot. You know, and my son's embarrassed, you know, and the clerks and everybody there are embarrassed. But it didn't matter, you know. I mean, that's what I have to do to stay sober. And I'd rather fess up real quick. Well, you know, when you're drinking, you have the excuse of drinking and drugging for doing all these things. But after I got sober, I was in a restaurant business with my partner, and my job was to pick up the money and count the money and take it to the bank. And and my sticky fingers... uh, had not been removed by sobriety, and I needed it, wanted it, and so I took some of it, and continued to take some of it, and and uh, when I talked to Greta, I said, Greta, I could just pay all this money back, kind of slip it in there as we go along, right? And she said, no. I think perhaps you'll see this differently. <laughs> and after I went to my, because my amends had gone so well, I knew that after I went to my partners and told them, you know, that I'd been stealing money from them, that they would give me the responsibility of the entire business. And I went to them and I told them. And they took all of my responsibilities away. And I paid the money back. And I started talking to Greta about this, this character defect thing, you know, like how how do we, how, what's going to happen here, you know, this six and seven deal. I mean, if I keep on doing what I've been doing, I'm going to drink again. And she said, well, you, you pray about it. And so I started praying about it. And I was praying for very specific things. I went to an outdoor conference, a camp kind of conference, and I was in the chapel, and the light was shining through the window on those beautiful, spiritual, you know God exists, stained glass windows, and I was praying for God to remove gluttony. I want to eat a whole pizza and look like Jane Fonda. If you can take away drinking and drugging, you can take away fat. And calories. Do it. (laughs) And I left that church feeling like I was saved. You know? I mean, I could understand those holy rollers going down the aisle because it had happened. God has done His deal on me. I know I can feel it in my soul. And I went to the cafeteria. And I ate everything in sight. But from that day forward, September 23rd, 1983, I haven't smoked another cigarette. I went to Greta and I said, okay, I prayed about it. And you should have seen how he screwed it up. One, I had to live with a smoking sponsor. You know what it's like to go to conferences with a sponsor that smokes after you've quit? And then she said, go read the step, you know. And I went and read the step, and I came back, and I hadn't learned anything, and so I had to read it again. And you know what that step says? That step says, God will remove, choose the character defects. It's the character defects that God wants to remove the ones that stand in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. So apparently, my size does not keep me from being up here. (laughs) 
part of what um, happened about character defects was that I learned to pray, Thy will be done, Thy will be done, Thy will be done. And I thought, you know, at some point in time, you need to get with this stealing business. Because I've been in jail when I was drinking, and I don't want to be in jail sober. And a friend of mine, an old, 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 old girlfriend came to town to visit, and I drug her to an AA meeting, you know. And while I was at the AA meeting, I talked a little bit about stealing. And after the AA meeting, you know, during the AA meeting, it was her turn to share, and nobody told her that new people don't share. And nobody told her that non-alcoholics don't share. And she said right there in the meeting, I'm sure glad Judy's telling you all the truth about her stealing, because she stole from me. She stole my makeup, and she stole my boyfriend. You see, events start occurring in my life which were causing conflict with this character defect. I do not know how and when and where it was removed, but I do know that since July 7th, 1987, I have been theft-free. And this is a big deal. I went to Rio Dosa to go uh, snow skiing. And um, before the lifts opened, the shops were open, and we were there to do some more of that compulsive shoo-do. And um, this lady said, I've got to go take my kid to school. And I started leaving the store. And she said, oh, no, you don't have to leave the store. You can stay here and mind my store while I go take my kid to school. And I thought... Is this a joke? (laughs) You know, this right side of my brain was going. You can get 14 pairs of earrings in that left pocket. You can get six pairs of socks in that right pocket. You can steal that fur hat and put it under your real hat. You can get some socks and some gloves into your coat. You can put on a couple pairs of ski pants and she'll never know the difference. You know, and that left side of that brain was going, he trusts you. To mind the store. I was not capable of trying on things. I sat down and I put both hands on the counter. And I sat there just like that until that lady got back. But I walked out of there with nothing that wasn't paid for. And I knew then, this thing is gone, you know, it's just gone. Came out of the courthouse one morning after trying a case, and there was a hairbrush sitting on the side of the uh, stoop there, you know. And I picked it up and put it in my briefcase. And that, I think that was on a Friday. And I, I didn't have any feelings about it, you know. And I always go to AA Saturday morning, keeps my weekend square. Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. By Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, I was a nervous wreck. And I sat there through about 20 minutes of that AA meeting, and pretty soon I started crying. And I said, oh, my God, you guys, I've got a hairbrush in my briefcase. (laughs) And they all said, yes, Judy. (laughs) It's a really small home group. They went with me to my house to pick up the hairbrush to take it back to the courthouse to put it back on the steps without even finishing the rest of the meeting. That's what I have to do. I have to do for me. After I'd been sober about, um, oh, maybe ten years or so, I decided, you know, it's time to get married. I mean, God plans for people to be together. and So I made a list of all the eligible bachelors and put them in a column and put their assets and defects in another column, you know, and then I kind of added them up and subtracted them, and I figured it'd take about nine of those guys to do the deal. (laughs) You know, some of them had some things to offer, but other of them, I mean, some of them were kind of lacking. And I asked one, and he declined after, (laughs) 
And then pretty soon, you know, my sponsor was saying, if, if they interest you and excite you, Judy, forget it. <laughs> Number one, interested and excited you. And so this really dull and boring private investigator comes back into my office, the one that had done the automobile accident. He comes back in my office and sits down. He says, Judy, you'll be glad to know I'm sober. And I thought, gee, you know, I didn't even know you had a drinking problem, but okay, you're a new person in AA. I will take you to a couple of meetings. And so I started taking this newcomer into a couple of meetings. And to an old timer, it's really embarrassing to take a newcomer. I mean, you know, first of all, you know what the third step 13 rules are. You don't take a guy. And second of all, you don't take somebody that's got less than six months of sobriety because it looks like you're dating. And you don't want to look like you're dating in front of your sponsorees. He was living at home, and he would say that in meetings. Oh. We've been married ten years. We tried to have a child early on and couldn't. I kept on having miscarriages. You know, and I thought, you know, what is this? Is this a joke? And then I, I recalled that I had had an abortion when I was drinking. And it seemed like the thing to do at the time. It was uh, an inconvenience to me and, and not uh, didn't fit in with my plan of, you know, live fast and die young. But in making and doing the fourth and fifth steps, sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth on, on the abortion, my sponsor had me write a letter to the child. And she said, you will know what sex it is and you will know the child's name. And when I sat to write, I did. And the child's name was Amy and she was a girl and she was about 12 years old then when I made the amends. And I wrote the letter to the child and apologized for again having an utter disregard for humanity. When we were unable to conceive a child, I called a lawyer. And uh, he said, oh, I can fix that. And within a couple of weeks, we had a little a baby. And uh, we adopted Charles for $67. Charles is blue-eyed and red hair and a beanpole. And he has wanted to have brown hair and dark eyes <laughs> Ever since he's been born, Charles is my precious child. My mother calls him my pathway to heaven. Now, what that means is he's an extreme test of patience, (laughs) kindness, gentleness, and sobriety. Some people call them active. Some people call them ADD. I call them, him, an absolute wild man. I came home from day, from work one day, and I was just, you know, I was in tears. I mean, you know, one thing that Alcoholics Anonymous taught me was, if you're feeling something, get it on and get it out. And so I was crying by the time I got home. I mean, it was one hard day. And Charles said, Mama, are you sick? And I said, yes. And he said, well, let's go to the hospital. And I said, it's not that kind of sickness. And he said, well, what kind of sickness is it? And I said, it's in my heart. And he said, well, lay down. I'll take care of it. And he was gone, and he came back, and he pulled up my shirt, and he put Johnson's baby powder on my belly. And he rubbed it in. And it took care of it. Shortly after adopting, of course I got pregnant. And I was in church one morning and, and, um, and, uh, felt the stirring in the womb. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was a female that was inside my body and that the name of the female was going to be Amy. God allowed me a second chance at being a part with Him in creation. And He gave me a living, breathing doll that's named Amy, and she's here with us today, too. 
in our clubhouse, it's a saying, ain't no big deal. And it doesn't matter how hard it gets or what happens, just ain't no big deal. And I came into the bathroom one day, and Amy had gotten into my makeup. And we have white tile grout. And she was into the rouge and lipstick. And I must have had one of those instant explosions on my face. Because the child looked up to me and said, Is this a big deal? the results of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They used to fight and argue with each other. They still do, but they were arguing one day about coloring. You know, and Amy was going out of the lines, and Charles was saying, you've got to stay in the lines. I mean, those are the rules. You've got to stay in the lines. And she was going out of the lines, and he was getting on to her. And pretty soon Amy said, this is my best, and it's good enough. And that's what I needed to hear that day. Part of what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous for me is becoming a member of uh, society, a functioning, contributing. You know, instead of the, what can I take out of it and what are you going to do for me? The gift of love has been, what can I put into it? What can I give and do for others? And when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred, I um, had taken some massage classes, and so I volunteered to go down there and do massage. And, you know, I wanted the uh, middle of the day when the new cameras were there, <laughs> time slot, you know, and uh, I wanted to wear a red dress, and, and they assigned me to like midnight to 6 a.m., And so for the days of the bombing, while they were still cleaning up, I went from midnight until 6 a.m. And uh, the volunteer team massaged the fire workers and the the other workers there. And it was like a, a gentle, loving experience for me because the only place prior to that time that I had felt a loving and a caring was here in this room. And Greta and I had been stuck in a snowstorm when we were going someplace at this little Days Inn motel. And she got her 12 and 12 out, and she was reading to me in the in the lobby of the motel, and it was so embarrassing. You know, and I went to the bathroom, and while I was in the bathroom, I had this overwhelming sense of love and passion for her. And what absolutely flabbergasted me was that I love her more today than I did yesterday. And here at this bombing were people, not newcomers in Alcoholics Anonymous, not friends or relatives, and not anybody that was going to do anything at all for me. And I loved them. The big book talks about um, that we have a hard time forming a relationship with another human being. And the business of, of Getting married in Alcoholics Anonymous is is one of God's grandest, deepest laughters. He hooked together an early morning person, which is myself, with a late night person. He hooked together a very detailed, what time are we going to get there? What time are, is it going to start? What are we going to pack? Person with a... We'll get there when it's time. We'll leave when we're ready. We'll take what we want to. Kind of person. He hooked together a person that could talk for hours and wants to have everybody over with a person who communes in silence with nature. He hooked together a classical music lover with a rock and rollist. But the most difficult part was the issue of sharing. 
after you've been sober and after you've been single for about eight years, the, the, the idea of sharing one's premises becomes extremely difficult and sharing is a part of forming that relationship. And half of the closet was entirely too much to ask for. And he very graciously agreed to a fourth of the closet. He very graciously agreed to his own bathroom. But the main problem was the shoes in the middle of the floor. My stuff, you see, was very neatly at the side by the wall, or it was over in the laundry basket, or it was on top of the dresser. His stuff was always in the middle of the floor. The phrase, perhaps you'll see this differently, has other applications other than step nine. After many years of marriage, I walked into the room one day, and I saw these size 11 shoes in the middle of the floor, and I thought, wow, I'm married. I get to sleep with the same guy every night. He wears big shoes, and they're clean. Isn't this great? And that was my whole change of attitude. We went to a piano lesson, and CB, the oldest, was with me, and he didn't have on a baseball hat, and he wanted to wear a baseball hat. And Mike was mowing the yard in the front, and he had on a baseball hat, you know. And so I said, honey, can CB borrow your baseball hat? And Michael said, no. And I thought, I cannot be married to such a selfish, self-centered son of a gun. I should have seen this a long time ago. How can I possibly share my life with somebody that is so self-centered they can't even give the hat off of their head to the kid? And I was furious and resentful. And I called my sponsor to tell her what was wrong with him. And she wasn't at home. And I called other people in AA to tell them all of his character defects. And they weren't at home. And in the last, I sat down to write. And what I wrote down was loaded questions. And I thought, well, what the hell does that mean? I had to go back to my sponsor and tell her the whole deal. And she said, Judy, no was not a possible answer to your question. You might as well have made it a demand. And I said, oh, do I do that? Gently, always, constantly pointing out, pointing out the character defects. It used to be like he would walk in and he would say, I've lost my hammer. And I would drop everything that I was doing instantly and search diligently until I found his hammer. And when we got married, I, I needed to have, we, I had him take a uh, compatibility test first. Because... Number one had not worked, and I wanted to make sure that number two would work. And he graciously did all that. You know, and I said, you know, we need to do marriage counseling. We might as well do marriage counseling now, as opposed to ten years from now when we don't like each other. And he said, okay, I'll do three months. And we did three months, and at the end of three months, he quit, and I was pissed. You know, I was getting along just fine in there, going and telling those people something and getting them all on my side. And they'd all jump on him. And so I went to my sponsor after that, and I told her the problem. You know, the problem is he will not go to marriage counseling. And she said, well, perhaps you'll see this differently. There's a program for people who are married to alcoholics or who have significant alcoholics in their lives, and it's called Al-Anon. And so, I've been going to Al-Anon ever since that day. And I see it differently now, and I say, thank you. Thank you for not going to marriage counseling. One of the things that I've learned in Al-Anon is, um, it's not my problem, you know? I mean, there was a, a, a lady that was 
sitting at an AA conference and the husband was playing spoons on his knee and people were turning around looking at her, you know, frowning at her like, you ought to stop him. And finally somebody said something to her, you know, it's not my problem. And from now on, when somebody says, I've lost my hammer, I think, gee, you know, that's too bad. (laughs) What a miracle. I want to thank you um, for having me, and I want to thank you for the um, feeling of respectability that I have for myself today, and the love that I have for my family, and the love that I have for the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.